Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Generation after generation, black residents across Appalachia have left in search of work. When the coal mine shut down here, everybody had no choice but to move. And because black miners and workers were often first to feel the effects of layoffs, the struggle to stay and to find a way back home is something that nearly every black family in our region has dealt with. This has been a story of African-American struggle and striving that we can trace through American history because we're always getting kicked out or moved from where we settle down. And I speak with historian William Turner, the author of a book about growing up in a vibrant black community during Eastern Kentucky's boom years. We're so accustomed in Appalachia's coal camps to booms and busts. And uh, while it may never come back with a capital B, I think that people will survive. And more than that, I think they will thrive. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today we're listening back to an episode we originally aired last fall. We begin in Harlan County, Kentucky. I got it in my head that I could make it out and actually be some for myself, by myself. This is Derek Acow. He's a young black man who grew up in Harlan County. For years, he wanted to leave. Derek got a college football scholarship and thought that was going to be his ticket out. But a serious neck injury led him to drop out of school and return home. Reporter Benny Becker spent about a year following Derek's story for our Struggle to Stay series, which aired back in 2017. And a quick heads up, there are some racial slurs in this story. Generation after generation, people in Derek's family have felt pressure to move away from home. The Struggle to Stay is a central part of Derek's family history and the history of his hometown, a little place called Lynch. How do you feel about the name of this town? You know, it don't bother me much. You know, I just wish it was named different because, you know, Lynch and you got lynchings and stuff like that. Lynch was actually named after Thomas Lynch. He was an executive at U.S. Steel, the company that built this coal camp town back in 1917. Today, there are yard signs posted all around Lynch to let everyone know that the town is celebrating 100 years of existence here at the foot of Kentucky's highest peak which happens to be named Black Mountain. Black Mountain, living Lynch, in a black community, you know. <laughs> what, can I, like, what can you say to it, you know? I asked Eric if he knew much about his family's history and how they'd come to live in Lynch. My grandma and my mom down here, they really don't say much about it. Karita knows more about it. She probably talks about it the most. Derek's talking about his cousin, Karita Brown. Hello, my name is Karita Brown. I am a visiting assistant professor at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm also full-time faculty in the Department of Sociology at University of California at Los Angeles. Karita has done a lot of research about how generations of African Americans have moved in and out of coal towns like Lynch. She's actually writing a book about it. Here's how Derek describes her. She does a lot of interviews around here. Everybody knows who she is. One thing that everybody loves about her is her hair. It's like really poofy and curly. Just beautiful. I love it. I'm trying to get my hair like hers. Big and natural. <laughs> Karita told me she's not surprised that Derek hasn't heard much about how his family first came to Lynch. Memory is a very complicated thing with the African-American experience. One of my mentors, Tony Bogues, calls slavery a historical catastrophe, a shattering of who you are and where you come from. 
you don't always want to be remembering that. Their lives, their roots, their origin stories started in Kentucky, and their parents weren't necessarily trying to tell them all their horror stories or what they endured to get there. Even though it's not something Derek's talked about much, I think that if you want to understand Derek's struggle to stay, you have to understand that many parts of his struggle are forces that his family has been dealing with for generations. This has been a story of African-American struggle and striving that we can trace through American history because we're always getting kicked out or moved from where we settle down. So now we're going to speed through 100 years of Derek's family history, starting with the origin story. How the hell did all these Black folks get to Harlan County, Kentucky? When the mining industry came into eastern Kentucky, we're at the point of World War, and the country needs steel. Coal is one of the products to make steel. So the mining industries found themselves with an insatiable need for labor. Mining companies like the one that built and owned Lynch sent labor agents far and wide to recruit coal miners. One place where they recruited was Alabama, where Derek's great-granddad came from. They were in a dire situation in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Alabama, and leaving Alabama was more of an escape. Slavery had technically been abolished, but many African-Americans were still trapped doing forced labor in abusive conditions. Some were stuck in unfair farming contracts, and others were arrested, often on flimsy charges, then sold to industries that needed workers. Many of these leased convicts ended up working in coal mines, where about 1 in 20 workers would die each year. It was dangerous to stay in Alabama, but it was also dangerous to leave. Derek's great-granddad used to tell a story about one scary encounter that happened while he was traveling to Kentucky. He was unsure if they were going to kill him right there. Cynthia Harrington remembers how her dad, Derek's great-granddad, used to tell the story. He used to get drunk, and he basically told us the same story when he got drunk uh, about how he hoboed, we call it hitchhike, from uh, Alabama because he had heard about the jobs in the mines. He said he was walking, and these white men saw him one day, and they said, hey, nigger, where you going? So he told them that he was going to Kentucky to get a job. And they said, we heard that niggas can preach. So they said to him, nigger preach. He said he had to do it because he was a little afraid. And then he said, after he preached, they said, well, we heard niggas like to dance. They said, nigger dance. And, you know, once he danced and they taunted him some more, they let him go. In Lynch, he started a large family, 14 kids, one of whom is Derek's grandma. There was decent paying work for a while, but then the coal industry hit a bump due to some forces that might sound familiar to people watching today's coal downturn. Coal was losing ground to competition from another fossil fuel, and coal miners were being replaced by fancy new mining machines. When we come to the mid-1940s, as the country is transitioning its dependence from coal to oil, the mining industry began to mechanize heavily. There was 
not so much of a need for all of that manual labor. As quickly as they pulled these people in, they shut them out. Uh, I know uh, in the case of Lynch, the African-Americans were the first to be cut out of the labor economy. Many folks in Lynch moved away. Harlan County lost 70% of its African-American population between the years of 1940 and 1970. That is an extreme outmigration. Derek's grandma was part of that wave of people who left Lynch. She followed some of her older siblings to New York City. There, she met her husband, Derek's grandpa, who'd come from Trinidad. Then, in the 70s, her husband lost his job, just as the coal industry started to bounce back. Mines in Harlan County were hiring again, and Derek's grandma wanted to get her kids away from the heroin epidemic that had arrived in New York. So, they moved to Lynch. When drugs started getting bad, came back to raise my kids, and I've been here ever since. Derek's grandma actually worked in the mines too for a year, around 1979. Partly because she wanted to see what it was like, and partly because her husband had told her not to. He always tell me, you ain't going no mine. So I went in there. I worked close to a year on a belt line. And I enjoyed it. It really paid good. But I need to be home. That was my job, be home my kids. This boom, like the last one, turned into a bust. And once again, many folks in Lynch moved away. Among them was Derek's mom, Katina Akal. When the coal mine shut down here, everybody had no choice but to move. I moved off after I graduated high school. I had went to Lexington, went to University of Kentucky, but I, I dropped out after I had Derek. The job I was working in was third shift, and I didn't have anybody to watch him. So I brought him here with my mom. So I was basically in Lexington for about 10 years, but I was always back and forth. And then after... I had my uh, younger son. I decided to come back home. And best decision I ever made. Derek's mom, Katina, got a job at a factory. Then she went back to school and managed to get a job close to home that she loves. I counsel at-risk kids. I felt like this is what I was meant to do. Derek's mom and grandma both found their way back to Lynch. But they were kind of the exception. In the neighborhood we live in, it was somebody in every house. Now we live here, and then there's three houses empty. There's the next house, and there's three houses empty. It's just terrible now. Derek's cousin, Corita Brown, is from one of those branches of the family that didn't move back. She grew up in New York on Long Island, but her family visited Lynch at least once a year, and Corita thought it was a magical place. This was a town that was segregated, so, you know... All I knew was that it was this black world. I thought everyone was black, not only in uh, Lynch, but all Appalachia, in my mind, was black. When out-of-town folks would come to visit, Corita and the rest of the family would often end up gathering at the house that Derek lives in with his grandma and his mom. Everybody wants to go there and hang out. The best food is going to be there, the biggest laughs. That house, I think, is in one of the most iconic locations for the the remnants of the Black community in Lynch because it is directly across the street from the ballpark, and that park is where everything went down. But what really, I think, makes that house a central location is that it is right behind the Lynch-colored public school. 
Up until 1963, the schools were racially segregated in Harlan County, and it was the premier black school. And the building is now owned by the Eastern Kentucky Social Club. So that building has so much symbolic meaning to the black community, and it's still a gathering place. Because the social club is so symbolic, it has sometimes become a target. Derek remembers a story his granddad used to tell him about an event that's something of a town legend. Forty-something years ago, a group of KKK people was going to try to tear that place down or something like that. My granddad told me how everybody was sitting there ready on, on, on their houses, guns out, you know, loaded up, ready for them to show up. And uh, I could just picture my granddad just pointing his gun, just ready for something to happen. But you know what? They never showed up, you know, so... I believe that's just some racist people around here, but I don't believe that they're brave enough to show up in Lynch, you know, because Lynch has a history, you know. You know, the people down here don't play around, you know. In a way, his home's reputation for violence has made Derek feel safer, but the reputation alone hasn't always been enough to keep Derek safe. It was 2015. I went to a, a, a house party. My girlfriend at the time, she led, she walked up a hill. It was away from the party. And I was following right behind her, and there was this guy jogging behind me, just screaming the N-word like crazy. One of them had a knife on him, and like, like he flicked that knife out. He was just sitting there holding it, just looking at me. My life flashed before my eyes. I was like, well, these guys are gonna probably try to kill me or something, so I'm probably have to fight for my life. And I looked at my girlfriend, my girlfriend was just sitting there just shaking. She didn't know what to do. So I was just like, you know, I was just ready to go. The first thing I'd done, you know, it was swung on the dude that had the knife first. Boom, knocked him out, first hit. The other dude, he punched me, and I didn't even feel it. Boom, knocked him out. And so, you know, the guy with the knife just kept on going after him. You know, started beating him half to death, you know, going crazy, beating up these two dudes. You know, it looked like I killed him, you know, two bodies on the ground. That's what it looked like. I remember I came home, it was like 7 o'clock in the morning. I had a blue hoodie on, and I had blood all over my hoodie, my pants, the white part of my shoes, and all around here was covered in blood. Later on that day, uh, got a phone call, you know, from the cops, and they was like, man, you probably had to go to jail for assault or almost attempted murder because that guy that had that knife apparently had a really bad concussion. I told him the full story. I was like, listen, dude, he had a knife on him, so I'm fighting for my life. You know, he could have stabbed me in my neck or something. You know, I wouldn't be here, you know. I told the cops about that stuff, and then they dropped the charges on me. They asked me if I'm going to press charges on them. I said, you know, I felt bad for, you know, for what I did. The big talk in town was like, oh, man, Derek about killed a dude. That was, like, the biggest talk for, like, almost, like, three months, you know. And usually I didn't, like, you know, step out the house, you know. You know, if I had to fight, that I have to, but it's just, I was so embarrassed of, like, what I'd done to that man. And I broke his jaw in two different places and fractured his skull with the kick that I gave him. And, like, what's crazy about it was, I like, two months after that, you know, I went to another house party and he was up there. And uh, he had scars all over his face. He had one scar on his forehead. And he came up to me. And he was like, man, I'm so sorry for what happened. I was drunk. You really beat me up, and you made me realize I don't need to be doing that. I said, I forgive you. Do you guys forgive me? And he was like, yeah. He was just sitting there talking to me and everything. He tried to hug up on me and everything, you know. And I gave him a hug back, you know, just be friendly. 
me and those guys were cool now, so so everything's cool. I guess I'm wondering if that experience pushed you more towards wanting to leave it all or, like, made you less comfortable with this area? I mean, uh, no. I mean, it can happen anywhere. You know, it's just crazy, you know, to sit here and think about, you know, anywhere it can happen, you know, anywhere. I was so friendly with everybody around here, you know. I didn't think it would, it would happen towards me, but it did. It didn't push me to move, but it did push me to start looking somewhere else. Looking turned into planning, and then one day, planning turned into action. I walked downstairs, had my bags and stuff, and I told my family, I said, yeah, I'm going to the beach, you know. No pun intended, I'm going to California. Love you guys, don't know what's going to happen. Derek A. Cal told his story to WMMT's Benny Becker back in 2017. You can listen to the rest of Derek's story and more from our Struggle to Stay series at wvpublic.org. I was standing by my window on a cold and cloudy day when I saw the host come to take my mother away with the In the past four years, a lot has changed in Derek's life. He did leave Kentucky and briefly moved to California. Those plans didn't stick, in part because it costs so much to live there. He moved to Atlanta, Georgia for a while, but eventually made his way back to Harlan County. He even worked in the coal industry for a while. Today, Derek is the father of five children, two of which are stepchildren. He works as a full-time cook at a restaurant in Harlan County. Derek's cousin, Carita Brown, still is faculty at UCLA, and last year became the Director of Racial Equity in Action for the NBA's Los Angeles Lakers. Her book, Gone Home, Race and Roots Through Appalachia, draws from over 150 oral history interviews with former and current residents of Harlan County. It was published in 2018. Harlan County was one of many Appalachian communities that benefited from the coal boom after World War II. Our next guest grew up there during those years. After the break, we'll talk with historian William Turner about his book, The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns. It just won the Weatherford Award for nonfiction from the Appalachian Studies Association. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. 
William Turner is one of the most prolific historians of the black experience in Appalachia. His 1985 book, Blacks in Appalachia, co-authored with Edward J. Cabell, is considered a landmark work in the field. Turner's newest book, The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns, includes his memories of growing up in Lynch, Kentucky. That's right, Lynch, Kentucky, the same town we heard about earlier in the show, where Derek Acal is from. But when Turner was a child, coal was still in its post-World War II boom years, and Lynch was a bustling company town run by U.S. Steel, back when it was one of the most powerful companies in the country. I spoke with William Turner last September, just after his book was released. Let's listen back to our conversation. Dr. William Turner, thank you so much for, uh, for speaking with us here on Inside Appalachia. Thank you, sir, for having me uh, on your show. I've been uh, a fan of this show for many years. I'm excited to talk to you about your memories of growing up and your book. But I wanted to start with the phrase uh, that you use in Chapter 3, which is Black Mountain Man Trip. And you say you nearly, you know, use that as the title of the book. So can you, can you explain that phrase to our listeners and, and talk about uh, why it's important to the, the book itself here? For those who are not familiar with that term, uh, a man trip was the conveyance, the transport machine uh, that took men into a coal mine. It was called a man trip. Uh, every morning, practically, as a child, I would hear my mother scream up the stairs and say, Earl, that's my father, uh, you're going to miss the man trip. Uh, he'd already be up, but I think she just got so used to saying it uh, that it just became almost ritualistic. And so the man trip was uh, my memory of this man who was our father uh, and how each morning uh, it was required that he get up to be a man and take this trip into this dark space into this tunnel and into the bowels of Black Mountain. Uh, Black Mountain is uh, uh, the highest peak in the state of Kentucky, uh, located in Harlan County. Uh, and we lived at the base of that mountain. So Black Mountain Man Trip uh, became for me a cobbling together of something that was at one moment geophysical, but it was also spiritual. Uh, and the idea of this uh, mountain that we lived at the base of uh, was the very source of life because that is where our father and our our father's father and our mother's father uh, that is where they they spent the greater part of uh, you know their trip on this earth was under the earth under Black Mountain. And so you grew up in the town of Lynch in Harlan County, Kentucky. So can you talk a little bit about? your childhood and, and some of what you remember growing up? I grew up in a very, very cosmopolitan place, despite what people might think. United States Steel was one of the most highly capitalized corporate entities in the early 1900s. Uh, they had already uh, built major industrial coal facilities in and around Birmingham, Alabama in the 1880s. Uh, many of the black men who were recruited from central Alabama. And many of the people I grew up around had come out of Alabama into East Kentucky between 1900 and 1940 to, to take these jobs that were uh, also drawing people in that first exodus of blacks after Reconstruction. 
uh, in the late 1890s when my grandparents were born. Uh, and uh, one set of grandparents had been born in southwest Virginia. My great-grandfather was a coal miner. My grandfathers were coal miners. My father was a coal miner. My father's brothers, five of them, were coal miners, as was my oldest brother. Uh, so it's, uh, it's almost like being uh, cold-blooded, C-O-A-L, as it were. So that Lynch, Kentucky was this place that might be said to be uh, when it uh, was founded by this man named uh, Lynch. Uh, Mr. Lynch was the president of United States Steel, uh, headquartered in Pittsburgh, uh, when they decided to uh, carve out these 50,000 acres around Harlan County and open up this bustling coal town uh, out of the wilderness uh, like a sphinx rising in the desert. And they built this town, and by the time I was born there in the mid-40s, uh, the town had some 12,000 people with some 38 nationalities represented from all over Europe. And people had come from Italy. They had come from Yugoslavia. They had come from Croatia. Uh, and so I grew up in a very dynamic town. It was one of the most highly capitalized coal camps, not one of those fly-by-night operations but a socially engineered, intentionally, purposely designed community where the company U.S. Steel in Pittsburgh sat down with pencils and papers and they said, we, we know how much coal is there and we, we can calculate how many people, men, it would take to mine this coal. And we think we need a thousand houses to put them in. And so they dug it out uh, the way you see suburbs spring up around Houston, where I live today. And they're all planned. Lynch was a very planned community. Uh, it had uh, all of the things that money could buy so that everything from the school to what might be now the equivalent of the American Mall was built right there in Lynch. And there was this big company store at which you could buy everything from a safety pin to a car. Uh, and uh, uh, that's where I grew up. And I lived there until I was 20. Our father had a steady job for 50 years, uh, and they raised eight of us, and they adopted our, uh, two of our nephews, and it was the same thing up and down the street, uh, communities of people who were from all walks of life uh, who were brought together in this industrial space uh, where they made a living uh, uh, for some uh, 100 years under the umbrella, under the canopy of this great uh, American uh, example of industrialism, and that was United States Steel. You mentioned in particular, I wanted to mention one person, and that's uh, Minnie Lee Mabry Randolph, um, Granny Rand, your, your mom's mother. Can you tell us a little bit about her and the role she played in Lynch and your life growing up? Sure, no problem. I have a, a large photograph of Minnie Lee Mabry uh, on the wall here in my study, a lady we always call Granny Rand. My grandma was a little bitty feisty woman uh, who was a bootlegger. She lived to be 103. She lived in the same house in Lynch in Harlan County for about 65 years. Granny came there in 1919 from uh, an area around Macon, Georgia. Uh, she and her sisters, my grandmother had been a sharecropper in her family in Georgia, uh, and uh, 
they were just looking for a better life. Uh, my grandmother and thousands of other people came up through uh, the Cumberland Valley, through the Cumberland Gap, uh, where Tennessee and Kentucky come together down around Middlesboro. And they came through that point. And rather than keeping straight into the Ohio Valley, into Cincinnati and Dayton and on up to Columbus and Cleveland and those industrial endpoints, my folks made a right turn into Cumberland Gap and came into Harlan County. And Granny came there when she was 19 years old. Uh, that is where my mother and her two sisters were born. They were born in a little town next to Lynch called Benham. And uh, Granny uh, uh, was, uh, as I said, an industrious person uh, who uh, supplemented our grandfather's uh, coal mining salary. Uh, and Granny would make homebrew. And Granny would, uh, uh, would in cahoots with a, a man named uh, Mr. Fats Lawson, who was a white fellow, uh, they sold moonshine together. And uh, they made a living. And Granny used... Uh, uh, saved up some of that money uh, uh, so that by the time I was born in the 1940s, she had bought a home in Roselle, New Jersey. Uh, and that's where my mother's sisters left high school in Lynch and went and lived in that house that Granny had bought in New Jersey uh, with the proceeds from her uh, little moonshining operation. I, I, I have to emphasize that I tried in my book to show that there was nothing unusual about our family. There were lots of families that we knew who did the same thing that we did. Uh, they had somebody like our granny, uh, and in many black communities, such persons as my grandmother was called Big Mama. We're listening to my conversation with historian William Turner. His book is The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns. It just won the Weatherford Award for nonfiction from the Appalachian Studies Association and Berea College. The Weatherford Awards honor books that illuminate the challenges, personalities, and unique qualities of the Appalachian South. We'll listen to more of my conversation with William Turner after a quick break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Appalachian historian William Turner's award-winning book is called The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns. It tells the story of the thriving black community of his childhood in eastern Kentucky and how it was shaped by the Great Migration from the Deep South to the mountains, and eventually onto the Rust Belt and other places across the U.S. The same forces that applied uh, to the people in my book, I'm just hopeful that uh, many people will say, oh, 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 I see. This same thing happened here uh, in terms of the deindustrialization uh, of what we call the um, Rust Belt cities uh, that have had to go through major transformations. Even Pittsburgh itself, the center of, of the Carnegie Empire, uh, the center of Bethlehem Steel and U.S. Steel and Birmingham on the southern end of the Appalachian region. All of these cities have had to find ways to do the same things that people 
are trying to do in Central Appalachia. And that is to say, we still must make a living, even though we lived in an extraction zone. And though my father used to say, buddy, coal don't grow on trees like apples, this stuff's going to run out sooner or later. And now that it has run out, uh, as you know, uh, the people in Kentucky and in West Virginia's coal camps and in Southwest Virginia's coal camps, they used to could rely on moving to Indianapolis, moving to uh, Michigan. You know, there's a place near Detroit called Ypsilanti, uh, where so many uh, uh, folks took the Hillbilly Highway into uh, uh, Ohio and Michigan uh, and Illinois and Indiana. Well, now those places are themselves bereft uh, of the kinds of working class jobs that uh, any American, white or black, could go and find. And now people are having to stay in Appalachia because the whole of America has become Appalachia in terms of the global economy and the new place where we live, where we even see towns now paying people to come there and work, Morgantown, West Virginia, Paducah, Kentucky, any number of places are now trying to find workers to do things because people are, are in dynamic movement uh, uh, in, in the last 25 years. You know, the last time I was in Harlan County, it was um, laid off miners blocking a train of a bankrupt coal company because they wanted to get paid. Coal-wise, the situation's very different. Um, and then also, you know, we've covered on Inside Appalachia stories um, of, of black residents living in Harlan County and, you know, the struggle to stay, whether they can, whether they have a future there or not. Not the populations, but individuals. So I'm wondering, you know, for your book that looks at the past and present, what does it tell us about the future in places like Harlan County? The last chapter in the book is called Meditations at the Mountaintop. And uh, two years ago, 2019, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, um, Several years ago, I uh, retired from my work at Berea College in Kentucky, and my wife and I looked around and we noticed that uh, uh, our two sons uh, had taken up their lives uh, in this bustling place called Texas. Uh, they moved, uh, one of them got married here in Houston 25 years ago. Uh, and so we found ourselves traveling back and forth to see our grandchildren. And so one day we looked at each other and said, why are we doing this? We don't have any family in Kentucky anymore because all of my brothers and sisters and cousins had left Kentucky many years ago. And so we moved to Texas. But two years ago, when the boat and all of our four grandchildren were old enough to realize what we were doing, you know the old story about how the worst time to take your kid and spend all your money at Disney World is to take them when they're five years old because they won't remember it. But if you take them to Disney World when they're 10 years old, they'll remember it when they're 30. So we took our ch grandchildren for them, Africa and Amani and Juneburg and Mule Train. Those are my grandsons, my nicknames that come out of Harlan County. We took them to uh, Concord, North Carolina, where my wife grew up. And that was nothing more than a company town run by... Cannon Mills, uh, a cotton town, a cotton processing town. But my wife's folks had the same kind of jobs as my folks. And then we left North Carolina and drove over the mountain to Whitfield, Virginia, and down Interstate 81 
and found ourselves getting off the highway in Abingdon. And I was being the tour guide, telling my grandkids how often I had been on that road from Abington into Coburn and over the mountain into Appalachia and into Lynch. And we did that with our grandkids for a week. And we uh, ended up standing on the railroad track outside of Cumberland, where you just mentioned when uh, those United Mine Worker devotees had blocked that million and a half dollars worth of coal that Black Jewel uh, was pulling out of Harlan County, and they stopped that train for a few months. And we spent time on that railroad track. Uh, for a couple of days, I took photographs. I interviewed people that I had grown up with, and there they were, uh, almost having what was like, kind of like a Brookside strike that went on back in 1974. And I looked at these guys again, and I talked to several of them about what they saw as the future. And I think they faced the fact that coal is in a contracting mode. Uh, they do not see it coming back with $60,000 salaries, like many of them were making much more than that with overtime as recently as 10 years ago. And so uh, they've come to realize that uh, somewhere is this new green economy, this new economy uh, uh, that has to penetrate uh, eastern Kentucky the same way the new economy uh, penetrated declining Pittsburgh and declining Birmingham and the inner cities of Knoxville. And now uh, you go back to those three places, you see uh, uh, new towns growing up around new economies based on health care, based on jobs in the solar sector, uh, jobs in the environmental sector in general. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, promises out there, and I think that uh, the future, uh, based on ecotourism, is not going to pay the same. But with the uh, fact that people can work remotely, I believe that uh, there is something about the DNA of these people who nourished me when I was growing up that uh, they have such pluck uh, and they have such... Uh, you can't keep a country boy down, and you certainly can't keep a country girl down. Uh, and I am fully confident that uh, in line with the rest of the world, despite uh, the, the rough spot, the rough part of the mountain people might be on right now, uh, I think that uh, we will see uh, the dawning of a new day in that region, uh, not based on coal and not based on what I know, uh, because I don't, but I do have a feeling, a deep feeling, uh, that the people in this region, uh, in Whitesburg, in Vicks, uh, in Blacksburg, uh, uh, in Clarksburg, uh, you name it, I think that these people will find a way to uh, fit in with the global economy, with the new diversity in Appalachia, uh, in terms of the coming of many people uh, the way I mentioned early, that uh, Lynch was this magnet for all kinds of people who came in the work. And plus, I just think you have a lot of people who have absolutely no interest in living in Houston, Texas. Uh, they have no interest in living in Atlanta. Uh, they have no interest in living in, in Cincinnati or in Nashville or, uh, for that matter, maybe even in Charleston, uh, what you might call the rim cities to the interior of Appalachia. But these people want to live somewhere where the, where, where, where the streams are flowing wild, uh, uh, where the, the dogwood trees still will bloom 
in April. Uh, and, and so I am convinced that uh, as an industrial strength optimist, uh, that people will find a way, people will make a way. Uh, we, we're so accustomed in Appalachia's cold camps to booms and busts. And uh, uh, while it may never come back with a capital B, uh, I think that people will survive. And uh, more than that, I think they will thrive. I, I think uh, 50 years out, somebody will be writing the same story about black life in Appalachian, former Appalachian coal towns. Uh, we ain't going nowhere. That's a wonderful note uh, to end on. Dr. Turner, thank you so much for speaking with us here at Inside Appalachia. Well, I thank you so much for inviting me, Mason, and uh, I'll see you along the way, as they say. That was William Turner. His book, The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns, was published by WVU Press last fall. It just received the Weatherford Award for Best Nonfiction from the Appalachian Studies Association. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Justice found that West Virginia institutionalizes too many foster children with mental health conditions, and it often sends them to out-of-state facilities. Last year, we aired a conversation with two reporters with Mountain State Spotlight and Ground Truth. They found that West Virginia has identified some of these facilities as abusive, accused of sexual assault, forced labor, and more. Yet the foster care system continues to leave kids in these abusive, out-of-state centers. Last fall, our producer Roxy Todd sat down with reporters Amelia Farrell-Nicely and Molly Bourne to find out more about what they learned during their year-long investigation. Amelia, I'll start with you. Your investigation really looked at the high rate of kids in foster care who are sent to out-of-state group homes and out-of-state facilities. Talk a little bit about what you found and what state officials with the Department of Health and Human Resources told you. So what we found through our investigation was at least 22 serious accounts of abuse and neglect at many of the out-of-state facilities that West Virginia pays to care for these foster kids. In 2015, state inspectors visited this home in Pennsylvania, it's George Jr. Republic, and it's an all-boys home. And we don't know how many West Virginia kids were at the facility, but from documents, we know there were West Virginia kids living there at that time. And inspectors found at this home that kids were being improperly restrained and that they could spend up to six hours a day isolated in their bedrooms. Some weren't getting the necessary therapy and education. And the facility was using a timeout chair as punishment. And kids could be in the timeout chair from two hours to two weeks at a time. So high up in this inspection report, DHHR inspectors say, we need to remove kids from this facility. And they said that the way the facility is conducting itself jeopardizes the health, safety, and well-being of the kids at this facility. Through documents that we got using the Freedom of Information Act, we know that seven months later, West Virginia kids were still at this facility. And in those seven months, we know the state suspended then terminated its contract with the facility, but there were still West Virginia kids living there. I know that speaking with 
foster care children is challenging. There's confidentiality issues. Did you speak with any families of children who are in the state's custody, who are at these out-of-state institutions where there have been found, where there have been known abuses? I mean, I just wonder, do these families even know that their children are at a facility that's problematic, that's been flagged problematic, do you think? We did not speak with families whose kids were out of state. However, we feature in our story a mother who adopted a child who spent time out of state. He's a teenage boy now. And she does not have a list of even the facilities that he was in. So she only has his record to go on, what he's able to remember. So that's the only look I have into that part of the system. And Molly certainly spoke to several families. And Molly, can you talk a little bit about some of the people you spoke with, foster families, and what their needs are and why this is such a tough problem to fix? Yeah, Um, we have group homes, treatment centers in the state of West Virginia. But what we really need is more foster families. And foster families, in many places, there are a shortage of them. It's not unique to West Virginia, but um, we both mentioned this in the pieces, but um, West Virginia just has a constellation of other challenges that it's facing that make the child welfare crisis, the foster care crisis, much more urgent here. But foster families that we talked to described just generally needing, uh, I'd say the thing that really struck me was how much they are desperate for better communication. The Department of Health and Human Resources hired an ombudsman that's a, a point person for concerns and complaints about the agency and foster families Uh, foster parents reported to this ombudsman in her first year concerns about being unable to reach the state-employed social worker that is responsible for the well-being of the child. And that was among the concerns that we heard. But communication was definitely a through-line problem. Did you find that there's a lack of oversight of contact between the DHHR and these children who are at these out-of-state facilities? Well, what we can say um, are these two things. First, social workers in the state are required to visit foster kids living in out-of-state facilities every month. Those visits were paused during the pandemic for some time, but they have now resumed as long as it's allowed in that state. Different states have different rules right now. But the agency would not provide to us a comprehensive accounting of those monthly visits. We have asked through multiple Freedom of Information Act requests for that information, And it was not, we never received a denial. We just did not receive those records. And yes, I mean, that's really what we can say is that we know they should be checking on these kids. DHHR won't answer questions about it for us. I think it's really important to mention like why it's important for kids to stay in their home communities if possible. This was just something that we touched on. Like there are kids who have serious mental health issues that they're, um, they need treatment for, and that might require them being um, in a in a treatment center or facility of some sort. But that, like, when possible, it's ideal for kids to be able to stay at home. And one social worker I talked to gave this fifty mile parameter as an example that when you place a kid in a in a foster home or elsewhere, fifty miles more than fifty miles from their home community that makes 
uh, reunification difficult, that makes, um, you know, stability is important. That kid might not be close to friends, other family members, and school personnel who can, you know, provide support for them. So that when possible, you know, less than 50 miles is ideal, uh, both in-state and out-of-state we place kids 50 miles or more from their home, which is, which is a challenge. Something that's been on my mind during this investigation is we're preparing for another wave of kids to enter the system um, in the wake of the pandemic, according to DHHR and just nationwide, everyone's kind of bracing themselves for that. So the biggest thing we need are foster care families. And we know from people who work in the system, they're telling us the bulk of the kids who end up out of state in these group homes are older teens. And we know statistically, those are the hardest kids to get into a family. So the number one thing we need are families who are open to taking older kids. We're not going to be able to probably find a home for every foster kid in need. So the second thing then that we need are in-state treatment options for these children that keeps them closer to their communities. Amelia Farrell Nicely and Molly Bourne worked together on an investigation for Mountain State Spotlight and Ground Truth. Thank you so much for your reporting, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. That conversation was originally recorded last September. Days after Bourne and Nicely's reporting was published by Mountain State Spotlight, several West Virginia lawmakers announced they'd be looking into the allegations raised in the articles. But seven months later, lawmakers in West Virginia failed to pass changes to the foster care system. You can find Born and Nicely's three-part series on our website, wvpublic.org. I'm Mason Adams. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Amethyst Kia and Jared Pigney courtesy of Apple Shop and June Apple Recordings. Other music was by Wes Swing, Blue Dot Sessions, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burbs. Roxy Todd is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.